Hello and welcome to Talking Cop from Bankers for Net Zero with me, Naomi Kerbel. In this special edition of the podcast, we welcomed an expert panel and a live studio audience to discuss how to achieve a just transition and how to scale nature-based solutions. So I would like to ask my panellists to introduce themselves because I think people always introduce themselves better than I would. And also, if you could each just tell me just one thing that you took away from COP27, whether you were there or not, uh, this year. Brendan, to you first of all. Sure. Uh, and yeah, first of all, thanks to SEC Newgate. That's right, well yeah, done. I did ask Heather just before, is it SEC or SEC? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, for inviting me to speak. Uh, and obviously, I've been working with Heather and Bankers for Net Zero for a while. So um, great to see all the work that's been, been done. And I, w- I was at COP. Uh, I did briefly drop into the green zone to see the transition plan task force. Uh, announcement, but didn't get invited to get interviewed that time. I feel I feel, dis- oh. I feel I could be bigger pulled than some of those MPs. But yeah. um, no, I think uh, I work at the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE, London School of Economics, as a policy fellow, uh, working primarily on sustainable finance, but very much focused on um, what role does finance have in driving a just transition. Uh, professor, you may know, he's, he's more well known than myself, obviously, Professor Nick Robbins has been doing work on this dating back to about 2017. Um, and we set up something called the Financing the Just Transition Alliance, or the, the Fajita, which uh, <laughs> Nick always says nice. is about the only funny thing in the just transition. But um, uh, we do a lot it's of work. It's got to be something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we do a lot of work with financial institutions, banks, primarily as well, as well as place-based actors trying to get that link between public and private finance to drive local uh, climate transitions as well. Um, so yeah, and what was the question? One COP27. T- COP27, one takeaway. Um, there's many, but I think, um, what, I mean, our personal takeaway is that we're going to need to see a huge amount more blended finance to deliver on the uh, transformation of the financial system that was laid out in the final agreement at Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, I think for those that might be aware of blended finance, there's a convergence report that showed that it has been actually trailing down year on year between last year and this year. So that trend needs to be reversed and we need to be thinking about what are the mechanisms to bring in private or grant private finance concessional capital alongside more commercial capital to actually drive behind not just the just transition but things like adaptation as well are really going to need that. So there hasn't been enough of that but hopefully we're going to see a lot more. More to come. Wendy. Hi, so I'm Wendy Huell, I'm Head of ESG and Climate Change at Santander for the Corporate and Commercial Banks. So my role encompasses literally everything at the present time, <laughs> working right across the board, supporting our clients, supporting our colleagues, and looking at the data that we require to answer whether it's the ECB or the, the UK regulator, and then also uh, looking at all the data and how we really do support our customers. So your point with regards to COP27, I wasn't there. Um, And actually, I wrote a piece for our colleagues to try and take out what were the learning points. And for me, personally, listening to Antonio Guterres, his opening speech and his closing speech were really, really powerful. But how do we get that message across? And how do we really help people, support people, to thinking about they've managed to get the loss and damage fund agreed, but not who's going to pay into it. And to Brendan's point, you know, mitigation, adaptation, are we moving fast enough or actually where are we going backwards? So there's a lot of work for all of us to do. And I think one key point is 
The Paris Agreement was in 2015. We said that by 2030 we hope to reduce emissions by 50%. We're halfway there already. We've got seven years left to really facilitate and move quickly. Charlie. Thanks. Um, I'm Charlie Ogilvy. I have the most out-of-date job title. I'm the strategy director for COP26. Um, <laughs> we've sort of worked quite well um, for a couple of years. Um, last year has been a slightly harder sell. Um, I ended up coordinating UK government's um, COP27 programme um, within the COP union cabinet office. So the negotiations and the events in the pavilion and the presidency's platform and the wider comms, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously thinking about how all the levers that HMG can pull in this national climate from our ODA programme in our ICF spend, our participation through the, the G's in conversations about financial reform, um, et cetera, how all of that can kind of come together to create a successful political moment. Um, my, my headline reflection on COP27 was that we didn't create a very successful political moment. Um, you know, I think there was progress made and the, the issue of loss and damage has been you know, an extremely difficult um, and um, very valid political ask of the developing world for some time. And it was important that we made progress. But we did not use that moment um, politically to drive forward on other areas of you know, what we need to do to deliver against our Paris goals. I think if there's one particular piece that might be of interest to this discussion, the, um, the HLEG group, the SG's group on, um, on standards and, and, and transparency around particularly corporate target setting reported back early in the COP. Um, I think largely reiterating things that we already knew about how companies should be planning for the transition. It was interesting that that happened you know, a week before the Treasury launched its um, you know, the TPT, so the Transition Planning Task Force report on corporate tr transition planning and how we regulate corporate transition planning. There was discussion in the negotiations about transparency and integrity. And my sort of question coming from that is where, where is this particular, where is this process leading this set of outcomes around the greening of finance and the greening of business? At the moment, you know, answers are being found and questions are being asked, but that next three or four years, as regulatory processes start to converge with voluntary action, standard setting starts to be adopted more widely, um, and you know, national government level policy starts becoming a major driver of change. How does that all come together? Is that a role for the COP? Or does, is the COP simply a kind of enabling political platform for that conversation? So um, that was one of the big questions that I left wondering about uh, after Sean. So one role for us this evening. By the end of the night, we're going to get Charlie a new job title. So all together, <laughs> we'll figure that one out. Heather, over to you. Um, yeah, so Heather Buchanan, obviously, um, director, um, the, the chief executive and co-founder of Bankers for Net Zero. And... Obviously, you know this this whole idea of, of SMEs was and and how they're supported in the transition was really the kind of nascence of of the Banks for Net Zero project, which was supposed to be a one-year project, on in you know that we started in 2019, leading up to COP26, and obviously world events kind of overtook us, and in one year turned to two, and during that time we became very involved with both the cabinet office and with. The COP presidency and the race to zero and the and the formation of GFANS and the Net Zero Banking Alliance. So that's kind of the, the journey that got us to, to being the, the first kind of country chapter in the world. But ultimately, the the, the, the nascent of the, the project was 
was a discussion that I had in, in, in Portcullis House with Louise Roper, who's the chief executive of Valence, and where we were discussing that we knew that there were going to be kind of pressures to clean it for, for financial institutions to clean up their balance sheets moving forward. Just as you know, post-2008, there was a pressure to clean up balance sheets from, from commercial property. That came really quickly and everybody had to react really quickly, and we said, well, sometimes with, with poor social outcomes. And we just said, well, let's start having a conversation early about all the, the conflicting interests and messages and regulation and policy that's going to happen as we go through, as we basically reset the economy and work towards, towards decarbonization. And how do we make sure that businesses and people are supported as much as possible, and you know, where it's, there's always going to be winners and losers, and people are going to go bust, and some people are going to, to thrive, but, you know, in, in any normal economy. But how do we make sure that as we're fundamentally changing what risk and value look like, which is a pretty big ask for an entire financial sector that's managed to kind of evolve over hundreds of years, and we're saying in a couple of decades we need to get this sorted. How do we make sure that we get that, that support in? And so, so this piece, and this SME piece, is absolutely at the heart of why we started this. You know, what is, what, what is the, the, the external pressures and the, the eventually what the commitments of financial institutions made? What does that actually look like on the ground? Um, and how do we try to kind of connect some of the dots to make sure that we have a glide path rather than cliff edges along the way? So, and in terms, I think, in terms of the, the was it COP for the, obviously, uh, for the whole time, chaotic and frenetic are the two top line words that I would, I would use for it. But it's very clear that the, the focus now is, in, is on action. Um, I think, absolutely right, everybody knows that we're not going fast enough and the commitments that we've made aren't bold enough. But on the other hand, there, even with what's been made, there's, there's so many challenges to implementing them. So as I just hope that as we go into this next stage where we're really starting, you know, I guess the, you know, the, the rubber is hitting the road, as it were, um, that w pulling in things and, and initiatives like we're doing with, with um, SME data and stuff, hopefully that can kind of help snowball and get things moving in a quicker pace because I think everybody knows we have to go faster but there are just so many uncertainties out there it's very difficult to to necessarily map that out. We're going to come back to the kind of granularity of what this means in the next year in terms of your partnerships with Icebreaker One and with Rewired Earth around common data languages and frameworks so we'll get there in a moment but Back to you, Brendan. Can, can you just tell me, from a kind of Grantham Institute perspective, from your perspective, what exactly is a just transition? Yeah, um, so it is, I mean, it's, first of all, you have to start off by saying it is a fairly contested term globally, uh, and that you've just got to be honest about that. And the just transition isn't uniform depending on geography and sector. That's what we always say. That being said, I think at Sharm el-Sheikh, you saw some conflation with the climate justice term. There was the Sharm el-Sheikh financing framework, which really was talking more about north-south inequality of impacts and contributions to climate change. And, that, and that's fine, but it has its more its, uh, its origins in the workers' movement. So 
not everyone knows this, but uh, the Paris Agreement in 2015 did reference the need for a, a just transition. So if anyone ever says they're Paris aligned, make sure they're also just transition aligned as well. But um, we think about it more. I think we try, you know, it is a workers' movement. It, is have, it have, does have its origins in the trade unions. But really what we think about is more about a people-centered transition to, the, to net zero. If we, and we really see it as an enabler of that and looking at it through those, impact, those most impacted groups, i.e., Workers, yes, but also the communities that surround those workers, the, the supply chains upon which you know, businesses and financial institutions work with, and also very pertinently, as we've seen over the last year, what does it mean for consumers as well? Who's paying for the transition in terms of consumers? So how can we take that, um, that framing in terms of those groups to try and make this more people-centered? And if we don't do that, there is a risk that uh, the transition to net zero that within the UK certainly we've seen legislated and are assuming is going to happen will either potentially not happen or, or happen in an inefficient manner. I think we've seen with the Gilets jaunes movement in Paris and other programs, if you don't put people at the center of both net zero or low carbon policy as well as infrastructure programs, um, you're, you, you know, you're not going to bring the people along with you. So um, the only last thing I'd say is that, uh, and this is maybe a bit controversial, this particular government doesn't particularly love the terminology around just transition, which is fine. Let's call it something else, really, then. Um, we could maybe call it uh, green levelling up. That's absolutely fine as well. Uh, or I think, actually, I was at the Conservative Party conference and a, a Tory MP told me that he didn't like the terminology but understood the concept behind it is as, as astute change management. So I'm absolutely fine with that. And I think that is what we're talking about, really, is that we've seen transitions not be managed well in a very astute manner historically. I think you probably know what I'm referring to. And I think we need to learn the lessons of that to put a more robust change management process in place this time. Astute change management. I, I do like that. I mean, we all, have, we all have buzzwords and terms, and no more so than in banking, where I started my career. Um, can you tell me, Wendy, from... You, uh, Brendan was talking there about this people-centred transition. So from an SME perspective, with the, the customers that you are working with, what, what is Santander and other banks like yours doing to enable this transition and accelerate it? So what the banks are doing, where we're coming from at the moment, is actually thinking about how can we raise awareness? How can we start having good conversations, educating our clients, thinking about what they need to do and where do they start? Because there's a plethora of information coming down at them as to we're going to need this information and if we've talked about transition plans, we've got the TCFDs at the present time, all of the large corporates are reporting on that and all of them fit into that supply chain. So they're probably thinking, where do we start? And against that, they have got cost of living crisis, they've got inflation, they've got the situation in Ukraine, they probably haven't recovered from Brexit, additional costs. We've now got strikes, you know, there was a poor woman talking about her card business with the fact that she can't get her, her products out there because of what's happening with the post office. So we are coming along and saying, well, what are you going to do about going on the road to net zero? And they're going, well, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to pay my wages next week. Mm. So we've got to find the way to phrase it so they can see that we're supportive and how we actually start that having a co good conversation with them and showing them that actually, to Brendan's point, that there is a way to help them show that their business will survive and that that's what their customers want, that's what their employees want, because actually at the present time, because of shortage of employees, 
you know, you've got a great choice as to where you want to work, and if that business hasn't got purpose and is showing that they're going to make a difference, then they're going to move on to other businesses. So. Charlie, can private can the private sector do this alone, or do we need government support? I mean, I think there's a, a fairly straightforward answer to that. I mean, clearly we need government support, um, and support both in terms of certainty, so you know, regulation and levelling playing fields. So there is clear line of sight for the large companies for whom regulation um, will bite earlier, but who have scope three emissions in their supply chains, which will ultimately probably be the main driver of transition for SMEs initially. Um, so you need certainty and transparency so those companies can plan and support their supply chains and indeed the financial community can see these changes coming down the road. But I think that you also need not just education uh, and communication, but you need to think about directly supporting those SMEs, particularly in sectors that you know are going to be significantly impacted. I mean, I, I was sort of unlucky, lucky enough to be in Bayes working on the industrial strategy when we thought that that was a thing that would be useful. Um, uh, we don't seem to think that anymore. Um, but clearly that there is planning that is required um, for those sectors, particularly where you know, change will be radical and it may not involve businesses being able to survive doing what they're doing today. So there's one end of the wedge, which is are you able to sort of net zero proof what you do today? And there's another end, which is you know, profoundly we don't need a fuel additives factory in Teesside because we don't use liquid fuels anymore. What happens to that workforce? What mm -hmm. happens to that business structure and its investors, etc., etc.? And I think in some of those cases, you need very significant government planning at a regional and local level to support those businesses affected. So it's a wide range of tools and ideally you do it as part of a joined up industrial strategy for delivering your domestic net zero outcome. Speaking of useful industrial strategies, um, we were discussing earlier that uh, Boris Johnson pledged 11.6 billion back in 2019 for international climate finance and I think we were saying it was three billion for nature, one and a half billion for forests. Can you give us some sort of an update? And that was by between 2019 and 2024. Can you give us something of an update, given we're a couple of years into that, on how that's being spent and, and what's going on with that? Um, so, yeah, the, the money is programmed by Bayes and by the Foreign Office, and some of it goes into sort of multilateral organisations who redistribute it. Some of it um, is spent in specific UK-backed projects or as part of consortia. Um, the spend profile was always a bit backloaded. Mm. It remains backloaded over the period, and I think you know we all need to remember that promise um, over the next two or three years when ODA budgets will be very challenged um, for lots of reasons that don't need to be um, unpacked. But I know that money has gone into things like supporting the South Africa JetP, um, the, the Just Energy Transition Partnership, um, and some of the other JetP projects that the UK is involved with it's gone to support piloting of, um, of low carbon and net zero infrastructure through the SIFs, um, for example. Um, and uh, at COP, we, I think, released 400 million for Congo Basin, um, supporting avoided deforestation in the Congo Basin um, as part of a longer term strategy to you know, prop up some of the key forest ecosystems. Um, so it, it, it's happening. But you know, as with all things governments say they're going to do, you need to make sure that they are continually reminded of the, of the promise. Uh, clearly, we're talking about international there, but you can take so many learnings from investing in those projects that we can, we can bring back home. So back to you, Heather. In terms of UK SMEs, in the next 12 months, 
plans that Bankers for Net Zero are making to help with this just transition. Can you go into a little bit of detail on that and also maybe explore some of the opportunities that you're seeing? Well, well certainly. Um, no, thank you. So I guess for the SME piece, we really started with the, the fact that, that banks have a problem right now and that they need to get information from SMEs and SMEs don't have time, they're time poor. It's the information that's being asked is inconsistent and if you're you know, a supplier and you supply for an agricultural supplier and you supply for supermarkets and you've got two bank accounts, you're potentially being asked for six different sets of information, which is bonkers technically <laughs> by, by anybody's means. Um, and then you add a layer to this that you've got the banks and you've got the supply chains all asking for this information. We haven't agreed what that looks like what's proportionate for SMEs, and a lot of the carbon calculators out there are all working on estimates. So you, it's, it's, everything's been very top-down up to now. And actually in that top-down sense, it, it's the, the smaller guys at the end that are kind of a bit adrift in that process. So, so that was really our kind of central rooms. Well, how do, we, how, how, do, how do we kind of create support in here? And by virtue of the fact that banks have a problem, SMEs have a problem because they're going to be asked for this information. But also from the from kind of central government and local government perspective, they had a, a problem in trying to reach SMEs because they're actually just worried about the day to day. How do we get them engaged in commitments? And so the the project that we with worked with Smart Data Foundry on was an initial scoping exercise and where we're going into the next phase now is saying, well, it's not true to say that SMEs don't have anything in common. They actually, they've got three things in common. They've got an energy supplier, not necessarily a direct relationship with a, an energy company, but an energy supply. They have to file the taxes, so they've got a, a relationship with HMRC, which most people kind of try to keep as, you know, short and sweet as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but they all also have a bank account, and you're actually on your bank account quite a bit, whether that's your online app or, or whatnot. So we, we started to think, well, how can we, so first and foremost, work with the likes of PCAF and CDP to say what, and the race to zero, and the kind of, so what's proportionate for SMEs to actually report on? And then how do we make that as easy as possible for them? That's where we're working with Icebreaker One, and Kevin Starks is in the room here, who helped roll out open banking in the UK. How, you know, how do we take that process and make it as seamless for an SME to essentially be able to share their data and get some really <coughs> baselines. And so then we get in a position where rather than having this, this kind of top-down reporting, we're starting to build from the bottom up the, the, the actual data. So somebody's scope three is somebody's scope one and somebody's scope two. So let's start populating that data from the ground up. But at the same time, how do we then think of this as, as an opportunity to actually, in a behavioural sense, get SMEs engaged, reward for getting you know, more involved, more information, how do we make sure that there's good signposting to government support schemes and local support schemes. So that's really, we're at the very beginning of, of the process of that. We're setting out the, the budget and the, the, the steering committee and the working groups that, that we've got, but the idea is that we incubate that, run that as a test um, as, a, as a pilot in the UK over the next 12 months with the view that we can then kind of set it free as its own entity um, by the, hopefully by COP28. 
I'm Naomi Kerbel and you've been listening to Talking Cop from Bankers for Net Zero.